0: I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep, faith keep the faith, keep the faith Keep the faith, keep the faith What's up guys, Brian Ratliff here Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. A young Alexander was like most boys growing up. He wanted to be like his father. At 12 years old, he had a chance to prove himself once and for all that he was worthy to become a great leader like his dad. A crowd was gathered around observing an untamable stallion, one by one, As each man mounted that horse, they tried in vain, and that beast threw them off. Alexander happened to notice on the sidelines that each of the men were thrown off without realizing that that stallion was just simply afraid of his own shadow. So with permission granted by his father, he mounted the stallion and rode off in everybody's amazement in the distance. The crowd erupted with excitement, cheers, roars, clapping. And in that moment, Alexander's father was never more proud of his son. This, by the way, was the beginning spark that ignited the potential, powerful, influential life of the man that would be later known in history as Alexander the Great. You see, after his father's death, who was Philip of Macedonia, or Macedon, Alexander, at 19 years young, would become a king of that region. And in his 20s, he developed this ambitious drive to overthrow the Persian kingdom. And in just 10 years, young Alexander had conquered the known world. From Greece all the way to India, his name was ruled as king and the Grecian culture had spread like wildfire. Now there's obviously been others like Alexander the Great who have arisen on this world, who came on this world to try to conquer and advance their kingdom to acquire world domination. But each of those rulers' efforts eventually came to naught. Another empire would just come along who was a little bit more powerful and would overtake them. Another king who is a lot stronger and maybe younger would come on on the rise and overthrow them. It's interesting when you begin to look at all of history, whether you go back to the Sumerian cultures or the Egyptians or the Persians or the Babylonians or the Grecians or the Romans or even the others throughout this last couple of millennia, what we realize is every kingdom that arises to the top will one day crumble down and cease to be the dominating force of the world. Every culture is that way. I don't know when that will take place for America, but one day in the future it probably will take place. But I bring all that up to say this, that here we live in a temporal world. Uh, The kingdom that we reside in on this earth is temporary. It will not last forever. There will come another ruler and another king and another emperor and another pharaoh or another kingdom to dominate the world we live. But there's a king who resides on a greater throne than on this earthly throne. And there's a greater kingdom that is unshakable. And that is God's kingdom. Today, as we come to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29, we discover these three words, that this, this theme is, is ringing out into our minds, God's unshakable kingdom. God's kingdom is eternal, and God's kingdom is unshakable, and there is no force of this world that can overthrow God's amazing providential plans that will take place in the age to come. And the writer of Hebrews is highlighting many of these things for us. Keep in mind, this writer of Hebrews... Is, is, is trying to encourage these Jewish believers who have been tempted to go back underneath the law system of Judaism. And this whole book is all about how Jesus is greater and superior and better than all that the Old Testament had to offer, greater than Aaron, the high priest, greater than Moses, that lawgiver and leader, greater than the angelic beings and greater than all the other figures mentioned in the 39 books from Genesis all the way to Malachi. And if I could give you a summarization statement today from these five verses in Hebrews chapter 12, it would be this thought. Here's what I really want you to leave away with today. God's omnipotent word will establish a kingdom that is eternal and unshakable. From our perspective, this is yet to take place. But from God's perspective, it has already been established. Way back in eternity past, the omnipotent, powerful word of God unleashed this kingdom that is eternal. It never had a beginning. It never had an ending. And it is unshakable. It cannot be overthrown by anything this world has to offer. Today, my friends, we can actually live in that kingdom right now. And I believe that this text is eventually, especially when we get to verse 28 and verse 29, is going to reveal to us how we can live in accordance and alliance with that kingdom now, but also in the age to come. But before we get into all that, I want to ask this question What is Hebrews teaching us about God's unshakable kingdom? Keep in mind, God's omnipotent word will establish a kingdom that is eternal and unshakable. But I want to draw your attention right now to verse number 25. Keep in mind, kingdoms such as the Grecian Empire of the days of Alexander or the others that have arisen since then, they will come to an end, but God's unshakable kingdom will never end. Look at verse 25. It is in this verse that I want to share the first of three thoughts with you today. God's unshakable kingdom will receive his audible word. God's unshakable kingdom will receive his audible word. Now, would you say the word kingdom with me? Kingdom. Say it again. Kingdom. One more time, please. Kingdom. The idea of a kingdom is there's a sovereign potentate seated on a throne overlooking this vast territory and region that is made up of inhabitants residing in that area. And so as we think about God's kingdom, yes, it implies a territory that he's going to oversee, but it also implies a group of people that are worshiping him and serving him. And so in this passage, we are going to see specifically in verse 25 that God's kingdom began with his audible word. And we can receive this kingdom into our life. But the writer of Hebrews, again, is warning the Israelites here, these Jewish believers warning us today. That if we refuse, if we reject, if we repulse the word of God, we will not receive his powerful, audible kingdom. Look at verse 25. It says, the very first sentence here, it says, See that you refuse not him that speaks. It is in this part of verse 25 that we are, are reminded that We are connected back to, remember the previous text, this this comparison between Zion, uh, the heavenly Zion, and Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. How God showed up to Moses on Mount Sinai and declared not a soul other than Moses is going to come on this area, this region, or else they die. And the same goes for any animal. It was a holy, sacred place. And there God gave Moses his word, and Moses gave his word to the people, But remember, the people heard the audible voice of God and they said, we don't want God's voice to be heard anymore. Moses, will you just go in and hear it and bring it back to us? But here it says, do not refuse and disregard God's word. If you take your Bible and you read the book of Numbers, if you take your Bible and you read the Kings and the Chronicles, If you take your Bible and just read really any book of the Old Testament, you know what you're going to discover? You're going to discover a group of people who were specifically chosen by God through the lineage of Abraham, who decided they did not want to listen and they ignored God's word. But here the writer of Hebrews says don't be like these Israelites don't be like the generation in the time of Moses when they heard God's word they refused God's word this word refuse it gives the idea to avoid Yeah, we know what that means. We avoid those telephone calls from those people who's going to keep us on the phone for two hours. We avoid those people in Walmart or the grocery store because they're going to hold us up in our daily routine. We understand this idea of refusing. It means to ignore. Imagine just acting like you never saw them in that store or you never saw that name pop up on your phone. Well, here, the same idea says that these Israelites were ignoring and refusing to listen to the very audible word of God that God gave to Moses and Moses gave to Israel. My friends, I want you to understand this, that our culture is, is no different than their culture. Today, we have the audible voice of God that was spoken to the writers of scripture who now, when we read it, we are in a sense reading the audible voice that God gave to these human writers who wrote it down and now we have it today. And so listen, Please do not refuse and disregard the very word of God. But then the verse he goes on, it says, For if they, es- if they did not escape the one who spoke to them, even though they refused him on this earth, it says much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. It's obvious the context of verse 25 is about God speaking, not man. Now, there is times when God speaks through a person. It is. And, and that is certainly the case in the scriptures. But, but as, if anybody comes to you and says, hey, God is speaking to me to speak to you, you need to make sure you sift that through the word of God before affirming what they said is true or not true. And here we understand that the primary method in which God speaks to us today is through the book you call the Bible sitting in your lap right now. And so this next part of the verse, it reminds us that that after they refused and disregarded God's word, they rejected God's word and disobeyed it. They heard it. It said, thou shalt not worship other gods before the true God. And they, in the Bible's words, went a-whoring after those gods. They committed spiritual adultery against the true God of gods and Lord of lords, and they disregarded and disobeyed God's holy word. Rejection is what is observed here in this passage. And listen, there's a lot of people who think that think that, that that since they do not believe in the existence of God, they are going to escape the judgment of God but my friends, that is totally contrary to what scripture teaches. Just because somebody says, no, I don't believe in the existence of God, no, I don't believe Jesus was the Son of God, no, I don't believe in this idea of the Bible that is conveying this truth that God gave it to us and that, that we can get to God through Jesus and the gospel, they might reject that, but that does not mean they escape the judgment of God. The only way you can reject or escape the judgment of God is through a personal relationship in Jesus Christ, clearly taught in the Word of God. So listen, don't be like these Israelites. Don't refuse and disregard God's word. And that just leads to rejecting it and disobeying it. But I want you to understand here, the writer is speaking of Moses and these Israelites who, who they, yes, they would affirm. They, would have, they, they, they could be like some of these ones in the past who would write these very elaborate confessional statements of faith. I'm talking about a whole book. And, and they could dot every doctrinal I and cross every doctrinal T, but then they would just add in other things to their life. They would add in Baal. They would add in Astaroth. They would add in all these gods. They would add in involving themselves with all these women or, or men, extra marital relationships. And the idea is, is that this, is that yes, you can affirm the gospel and you can reject God's word. You can be a believer. You can literally be born again, born from above. And you can deny and reject the word of God in your life, especially in an area where it's a sin that you struggle with. I mean, I know we're all human here. We give this idea that, that, well, you struggle with that. Ah, I'm better than you. But we all have a sin that we struggle with and they did. But then as I think about verse 25, I think about this idea how once we refuse and disregard God's word, then we'll reject and disobey God's word, but then we will repulse and deny it. So consider this, do not repulse and deny God's word. Hey, many years ago, I I forget exactly how old I was. I was probably like 17, 18 or 19. And I was, this was in the phase of my life when I was getting into a healthier lifestyle. I was trying to eat more organically, especially in a time when you couldn't buy it at Walmart. And I was all about eating produce from the garden. And I went to a friend's house and they had this massive garden in the backyard, but all it had was turnips. And, and I had just been on this kick of eating beets. And so you pull up a turnip out of the ground and it, looks, it, it essentially looks like a beet. And so I, I got all these bags and I started loading up these bags with all these turnips, man. I, I was like, man, I'm gonna have me a feast today. And so I went home and I, put, I cut up all the turnips and I put it in my steamer and I steamed them and I got the turnips out. I was like, oh, this is gonna be great. One bite of that turnip and it was repulsive to my taste buds. <laughs> have you ever been there? Maybe some of you, you like turnips. Well, God bless you. I don't. I will be madly offended if you fix me turnips for a Sunday dinner. Just kidding. Um, But just as we repulse food that we do not like, the Bible implies here in this verse that these Israelites got to a point after they refused it and rejected it, they begin to repulse God's word and say, we don't want it in our life at all. And that's exactly what our culture is doing today. Our culture has tasted the very word of God. They have tasted its sweetness and they've also tasted its bitterness. And now my friends, we need to be the ones that are holding up the word of God and delivering God's word to them today. Because God's unshakable kingdom cannot be overthrown by any force of man. May I draw your attention out of verse 26 and verse 27. What else is the writer of Hebrews teaching us about God's unshakable unshakable kingdom? Keep in mind, God's omnipotent word will establish a kingdom that is eternal and unshakable. But now in verse number 26 and 27, we see a second thought that this writer is teaching us. Secondly, God's unshakable kingdom will not just receive his audible word, but will believe his powerful word. Imagine there's a king. He speaks... It's received. That word is received by the inhabitants of his kingdom. And then they take it and they believe it. I do believe that Alexander the Great was plagued with this idea by his mother. And he believed it. He literally believed, Alexander did, in the 300s BC. He believed that he was a descendant of God himself. Literally. He believed his father was one of the pagan Grecian gods. And he was able, with great rhetoric abilities, to convince his culture that he was as if God incarnate at times. Well, there are times when, it, when a king speaks and, and it is total rubbish. But then there's times when a king speaks and it is actual truth. And then that truth needs to be believed. And it is in verse 26 and verse 27, we see the idea that the writer of Hebrews, even though this book is inspired by God, he's going back to the inspired Old Testament and quoting a verse that these believers would have been well as with. Check it out now. In verse 26, he says, whose voice speaking of God's voice? Not Moses' voice, but God's voice. Whose voice then shook the earth? If you want to, you can go back later and go to Exodus chapter 19. And you can read this account when Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving that 10 commandments from God and God shakes the earth and the mountain. It took place. So check it out now. God's word speaks with powerful omnipotence. It does. God's word is potent. It is powerful. Several years ago, in fact, it was, it was my first year as a pastor. And as a first year of a pastor, listen, it, it, talk about a learning curve, a major learning curve, especially when I was 22 years young, trying to navigate all the different things, preaching and teaching and, and, and shepherding. And so there I am on the fifth floor of Lewis Gale Medical Center there in Salem, visiting, you would remember him, some of you would, James Payne. And I was trying to encourage him. He'd been in the hospital for, a, for several days, a few weeks, really. And out of nowhere, the building began to shake. I mean, it shook. And I said, well, I'll pray for you, brother. I got to get going. And so I ran over to the elevator, went down and got out of that building as fast as I can. It was an earthquake that shook the entire medical center. Powerful. Just like we receive an earthquake here, The Bible actually tells us in Exodus 19 that there was an earthquake that shook Mount Sinai, but it wasn't necessarily the tectonic plates moving. It was the audible voice of God speaking that moved the world. Listen, you say, I don't believe that. Well, hey, you probably wouldn't believe Genesis one either because that actually says that God spoke the word into existence. He spoke the world into existence. He spoke you into existence. He spoke creation and the creative order. Everything we see, the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets and, and everything we see here on earth, the mountains and the valleys and everything was, was was spoken into existence by God. And so if you are like me and you believe that God spoke the world into existence because his word has power, then you can clearly believe that God has power to shake the earth with his word. And that's what took place. But then uh, moving on in verse 26, the Bible says that whose voice he shook the earth, God's voice did. And it says, but now he has promised. This word gives the idea a profession that is fully accurate. And it says that he gave us this promise. And he says, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. This verse, you may not realize it, because it's not specifically said, but this is a direct quotation from Haggai chapter two and verse number six. Now, maybe you've read the book of Haggai, maybe you haven't. Well, the book of Haggai is settled into the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Later in the Old Testament, we find that, that you know, Babylon comes and besieges Israel and takes them captive for 70 years. And Israel is commissioned by Persia, by Cyrus, to go back to Israel and begin establishing their place of dwelling and to rebuild this temple. And time stood still in the Israelites after they got the foundation built. They begin to realize, man, this is just not quite like the temple that we used to have. And so they begin to to slack off. They begin to cease the work. And so Haggai comes on the scene and he begins to say, Hey, Israel, consider your ways. You're getting a little lazy. It's time to get back to work. And build this temple so we can worship God as he declared us to worship him from the Torah. And in the midst of this amazing book, Haggai is used to talk about how these kingdoms are going to crumble and fall. How the earth is going to shake. But one day, God will shake the earth again. But he's not going to just shake a mountain on Mount Sinai. He's going to shake the entire world. And he's going to shake the entire universe. And the end will come. It is in verse 26 we see apocalyptic nature in the writer of Hebrews' words. This is a a reference, I believe, going to what Jesus said in Matthew 24. What Peter says in chapter 3 of his second letter. And what John writes in the book of Revelation. How one day there's going to be a massive great earthquake that's going to shake the whole universe. And then God is going to destroy this world with a fire. You say, well... You believe in global warming? Well, I don't know if all this stuff that they're talking about is, is entirely accurate going all the way back to the beginning of creation. But what I do know is that in the future, this world is gonna burn up by God's word. It will. Second Peter says, this earth will melt with fervent heat. So from that perspective, sure, I believe in global warming. But as I think about this, I think about how God's word speaks With not just powerful omnipotence, but with prophetic omnipresence. Keep in mind, the writer of Hebrews is living in the very first century. So prior to 100 AD and after 0 AD. But in this passage, we see this idea of going back to the time period of Moses. Thousands of years before that. And then several hundred years before the life of Christ, you have Haggai or a few hundred years, give or take some. And so we see that God is back there in Moses' day. He's there in Haggai's day. He's there in Jesus' day. He's in the apostles' day. And he's here now. He's everywhere at all times. He's always existed. And his word carries prophetic weight. And then if he declared something's going to take place, it is going to transpire. So I believe it. I've received it. But the question is, is... Do you believe it? And have you received it? Check it out now. Verse 26 talks about this powerful, omnipotent God and this prophetic, omnipresent God. But then in verse 27, the writer of Hebrews correlates this quotation again by saying yet once more. So now he's reiterating what he just quoted and he summarizes it in his own words. And he says, this word that was spoken by Haggai yet once more signifies or declares the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, Haggai is reminding us, along with the writer of Hebrews and many other writers of the Bible, is that God is is at the end of this age that we know of, is going to destroy the world and create a new one that will withstand eternity. It will not be shaken It will not be here today, gone tomorrow. It'll be there to stay forever and ever. God has given us this promise. Do you believe this promise? This promise is prophetic. This promise is powerful. We have to believe it. But now may I draw your attention to verse 28 and 29. It is here that we're navigating this idea of receiving God's audible word. Believing God's powerful word. But once we receive it and believe it, guess what? There is a conception that takes place that assures us we can take to the bank what is being said is true. So thirdly, what else is Hebrews teaching us about God's unshakable kingdom? Well, we understand that God's omnipotent word will establish a kingdom that is eternal and unshakable. And God's thirdly unshakable kingdom will conceive his assurable word. God's kingdom will conceive his assurable word. Look at verse 28. Remember, whenever there's a term called therefore or wherefore, we have to discover why it's even there. And then it's often connecting us with the previous thought to the next thought In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying everything that he said thus far to again say something with an application. And so now it says, wherefore are we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved? This kingdom, it can't be moved. If you look at a map, if you look at a map in the ancient world, you see how Alexander the Great's empire went from Greece all the way to India. Now, if you look at Greece, it's just over Greece. Same thing with the Roman Empire. Uh, same thing similar to the modern British Empire. Uh, Our empire, if you want to call it that, it is certainly expanding for sure the territory in which we own as, as United States. But, but we see that, that kingdoms increase in their territory and they decrease in territory over time. It fluctuates. But God's kingdom, listen, it cannot be moved. It is firm. It is settled. It is fixed. It is anchored into his firmly fixed, spoken word there to abide. And so he is linking this idea that this temporal kingdom that we're all living in is coming to an end. But God's eternal kingdom is unshakable and will never end. Now he gets into the application. He says, let us. This is the idea. I like the humility of this writer. He says, let us, including himself. He says, we understand that, hey, this world is going to come to an end. The kingdom of this world is going to come to an end. And God's going to establish a greater kingdom that has ever been established ever in history. And here it says, let us then have grace. Therefore, so, or whereby, so we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So I think the the, the key word here in this, the key two words here in this passage in verse 28 is serve God. Would you say the two words with me? Serve God. Say it again. Serve God. One more time, please. Serve God. The idea here with service is, is, by the way, worship. Whenever you see the word service in the Bible, you should automatically think this is a serving opportunity that I am offering up to God as a means of worship to him. So service is worship. And he says, let us have grace In other words, we know about this eternal kingdom that's coming. So let us now serve God with grace. And so consider this, let's worship and serve God with grateful graciousness. When you begin to study this word grace in the Bible here, you'll discover that it gives the idea of grace that has been given to us, that makes us fall to our needs with complete gratitude. That's what grace does. When we understand that the God's amazing grace gave us eternal salvation, His Son, Jesus Christ, and it's nothing we can earn by our own merit, that should make us plummet to our knees and say, God, thank you. God, we worship you. God, how can I serve you? I'm afraid that we've lost our gratitude. We've lost this idea of being thankful in the church today. Because we have this entitled mentality, perhaps given to us by our own American culture. It has been driven into our minds in the church. We have this entitlement mentality. We go to God and we say, God, I'm entitled to have this or entitled to have that. When in reality, we are entitled nothing more than the very judgment of God. And our worship and service has got to be full of grateful graciousness. Knowing that this opportunity that we get to serve and worship God is given to us by God himself. The gifts that you have were gifts that God gave you so that you may worship him. He says grace in this service. But then he says this idea of acceptably. Acceptable or pleasing. Well pleasing in God's eyes. So worship and serve God with not just grateful graciousness, but with humble acceptableness. This idea of being accepted in God's eyes is the idea of something that is well-pleasing. It points us back to Abel earlier. He's mentioned in verse 24 about how the blood of Christ speaks greater things than that of Abel. How that Abel's blood was crying out vengeance, but God's, God the son's blood cries out forgiveness. Amazing. But then pointing us back to Hebrews chapter 11 about how Abel brought a uh, more excellent sacrifice than Cain. This idea that, that his excellent sacrifice, it was well pleasing in the eyes of God, whereas Cain's was not. And so when we come before God with worship and service, we need to, honestly, we need to say, God, we're designing to do this so it can be well-pleasing in your eyes. In other words, we should not have hazardly and flippantly come before God in worship. That leads us to this idea of reverence, respect, and godly fear. We are to worship God with grateful graciousness and humble acceptableness, knowing that, that, that when we come before God, just like we can't march into the Oval Office in, in D.C. and demand this of our president, we would come in humbly before him. And if it may please you, president, sir, same thing. We come before God with humility. But then this concept of worship and serve God with all full That is A-W-E dash F-U-L-L. All filled or all full reverence. This this first word here, it says that we can have grace so that we may serve God with acceptance and containing reverence. This idea of reverence, it means all. It means this idea that we're standing before God in complete wonder. I'll tell you, we think about eternity, our mind can't grasp it because we're actually engaged in time. We don't really understand life without time. But in eternity, time won't, won't be there, at least to the best of my understanding. It, it won't be like we have it right now. And I think that we could spend billions of years just wow, God, whoa. We could. It wouldn't even compare to standing at the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls or some of the under other natural wonders of this world. It just, in that type of awe, it will pale in comparison to the all that we will see with God. And so when we come before him, we have to have this, this awe-filled reverence, be like, wow. And then as we walk into his presence, that will transition to godly fear or what we call honor and respect. Honor and respect. Isn't that missing in our culture today? We have little five-year-olds going up to adults and saying, what's up, dude? How's it going, bro? Now, I'm all about saying dude and bro. Don't get me wrong. But there is this idea of, of, of respect, saying, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. No, ma'am our Mr. So-and-so, our, our brother so-and-so, our Mrs. So-and-so, our, our sister so-and-so. I think that, that at times we've kind of lost that in our modern age. And as a result of we losing respect for authority figures like police officers and firefighters or, or doctors or, or medical personnel or, or principals or, or whatever type of leadership role you could think of, we see that this same level of respect has in a sense been lost for God. And that's why I think the modern movement of churches don't quite understand when we gather to worship. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. So we're not here to try to create this atmosphere that would be so appeasing and and enticing for the lost world to come in. No, no, it should be so reverent in such a way that that we're here to worship God and it it should look so much different than everything outside these four walls when we gather together. And so here it, it, it says godly fear and reverence, acceptableness, service, graciousness, gratitude. You know, this might sound very morbid to you, but I am totally fascinated with epitaphs. I don't know why. They amaze me. And some of the famous people, I think some of them are are rather interesting. Frank Sinatra, you've heard of him, right? His epitaph was, the best is yet to come. (laughs) Martin Luther King Jr., he said, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Winston Churchill, I think you've heard of him pretty famous guy. He said, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether or not my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Wow. That's not arrogant at all. Now, I thought this one was absolutely hilarious. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up with no place to go. (laughs) Here's another one about a father who, who, you know, never had any sons. He had four daughters. And, and he said in his epitaph, raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom and still there was love. <laughs> now, this is probably my favorite one out of all of them. It says, under the sod and under the trees lies the body of Jonathan Peace. He's not here. There's only his pod. Peace shelled out and went on to God. That's pretty cool. I say all I did to say this. That what's interesting is, have you ever thought about what is God's epitaph? Now, I know God is not dead. Don't put words in my mouth. But if you could summarize God in a phrase, what would it be? I think the writer of Hebrews does that very well in verse 29. Would you look at it? It says, for our God is a consuming fire going back to earlier in this morning where he's correlating this this Mount Sinai with Mount Zion, that if you step on this mountain without my permission, you will be consumed. Then we understand that throughout scripture, God has used fire to consume different things. And so here, I I think we're being pointed to this end times event that's gonna take place in Revelation 20 when all the unbelievers will be consumed by the wrath of God in the lake of fire. And so the reality is this, is that you can either be a believer and be consumed by God's love, mercy, and grace for all eternity, or you can be an unbeliever and be consumed by God's wrath, judgment, and indignation for all eternity. Now this should spur us This should inspire us to get out into the world and share to them there is an all-powerful God who has spoken his word and has established a kingdom that will not be shaken and not be moved by any effort of man. And you need to join this kingdom. If you're here today and you've never experienced the life-changing power of God's amazing grace through his son, Jesus, I'm here to tell you something. His word will radically transform and change your life. God's omnipotent word will establish and has established a kingdom that is eternal and unshakable. This is God's unshakable kingdom. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the Faith. the face